0: deep can we can't go Hey y'all welcome back to the Deep Sea with Donna Lee I'm your host your resident guide and sociologist Dr. Donna Lee Granville and woo! I'm excited to say this is episode two. We made it y'all. Talk about never would have made it Marvin Sapp. Like we, we made it to episode two. I wanna say thank you to everyone who's listened to our first episode. Thank you for the downloads. Thank you for the feedback. I mean, this is completely stretching me out of my comfort zone, but I'm really excited to show up here. My producer and I are really convinced that we have something good to say and offer. And so here we are once again, It's all. Now, in case you've forgotten, The Deep Sea is a biweekly podcast where we're going to use sociological frameworks to ask those big why questions like, why the hell are we the way we are? And then we're going to use those answers to figure out how. How do we change ourselves and how do we change the world that we live in? Because in case you haven't noticed, it's a little crazy outside and we do need some change. So that's what we're here to do. Last time we talked, I left you all with a question about well-being. Let me start by saying, I'm going to have to start toning down my questions because these questions be wrecking me. But just so you know, I'm actually grappling with all the things that we're talking about, right? This content is coming from an inspired place. And so it's not fair for me to ask you to think about it without also thinking about it myself. So the question was, what does well-being mean to you and what are you willing to do to achieve it? And at first I was a little superficial because I was running right? It's the deep sea for a reason because these questions can get deep. But then after I really thought about it, I realized that some of what I'm actually saying for myself, well-being means is being able to control the pace of life. For me, as someone who's taken so many years to get a Ph.D., right? I have literally been running towards the next goal for as long as I can remember. And this January, my body said, can we have a gentle January? Can you not rush into your plans and your goals? Can you take a moment just to sit still and be? And so I took myself home to Jamaica and I did exactly that. I packed seven books and I barely cracked any one of them because my body said, no, rest, relax. Relax and that's probably one of the first times in maybe the last decade that I've really just given myself the moment to sit and to be still and to rest. I know hustle culture and grind and capitalism says you need money to you know you need to make money. You need to have three and four jobs to get the dreams that you want realized, but I really walked away from taking that time refreshed. I walked away clear with clarity that I need to move forward, and I'm wishing all of us that kind of a gentle January and a start to the new year. Take it if you can. You don't have to run away to Jamaica. You might just need to take a nap, but do whatever you need to resist the urge to just jump into a 100% full-on mode. Um, anyway, guys, that was my answer. I really do want to hear from you, so please hit us up on social. Tell us your answer to what well-being means to you and what you're willing to do to achieve it. Now this episode, I'm really excited about. In part because after episode one, as much as the feedback has been really awesome and amazing, I realized how much I was being such a harsh critic on myself. I was concerned about my eloquence. I was like, I'm better at this in the classroom, you know. I'm wondering that maybe some of you guys are like, who gave her a PhD? Does she is she really an educator in college classrooms? Yes and yes. But because I was being so harsh on myself and being such a tough critic, I realized that hey. I am actually going through another transformation of self. And it's a perfect time for us to talk about exactly what the self is and what it means from a sociological lens. And that's what we'll do today. We're constantly bombarded with all these messages about ourselves, right? Be responsible for yourself. Little old school hip hop is always, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Um, all of these ways that we're told that we need to think about the self, self-care, self-love, don't be selfish, be selfless a little bit. I mean, all of these messages can seem to be confusing. and so this week, we're going to try to figure out what does sociology have to say about the self. I'm also really passionate about this episode because sometimes I think that sociologists have ceded territory over the self to psychologists and to social psychologists and to therapists. Now, we're not going to put them out of a job, but the reality is we do have something to offer that is quite important for us to understand how the self is social. And that's what we're going to get into today. So y'all, let's go deep sea diving into the self, and if you want to add a little fun to this, I will probably say the word self a million times. So I don't know, maybe you got like a water goal, have a sip of water. When I say, it. maybe you want to drink, that's your business. Do what you want to do, All right? Maybe you want to play bingo with me, but make it a little fun because you will hear the word self a million times. Let's get started. As always, you know, I got three points for you because I'm gonna keep it cute and pushing. So the first one is this. What is the self? The self is an evolving idea we hold about who we are and that we live out with real consequences. Now, that idea comes from Alan Johnson, one of my favorite sociologists, because he just makes things really plain and accessible. So I want to read you his direct quote because it'll it'll add some clarity to this conversation. Johnson writes, When my body does something wrong, as when my hand takes something that doesn't belong to me, no one blames my body, even though it did the deed. Nor do they blame my brain, bad brain, which directed my body to do it they blame myself. You should be ashamed of yourself. Just exactly what that self is that I'm supposed to be ashamed of and where I'm likely to find it are elusive things. Because more than anything, the self is an idea we have about our own existence. It is a powerful idea because we don't live it as such. We act as though the self is as real as anything we can see and touch. Ain't that true though? Right. And all these and all this conversation about um, figuring out yourself, being responsible for yourself, self-love, self-compassion, self-care. We act like the self is something that you can go pick up on a shelf and target. And it really isn't. It's an evolving idea. It's also important to note that sociologists are always talking about a social self right? For us, the self is always evolving through social context and environments. And it's also evolving through the different social positions and circumstances that we find ourselves in. So we're always talking about the social self. If you want to have a better understanding as to why the social is so important for the self, let's go right back a couple of years ago to the pandemic and all of us having to isolate ourselves and how difficult it was to not have human contact. It's also why solitary confinement for those who are in prison is also terrible, right? Cause you're denying people the contact that they need. It's why babies get skin to skin contact because we do need to know that we belong to something, right? That's important for us. So the self is social because we are evolving through these social contexts and environments and these social positions that we accumulate over the course of our lifetime. So, if the self is an evolving idea the next question for us to tackle is this how does society see the self before i answer the question i want to make it clear that i'm talking about big society big s not the little one and we'll talk about the little one in a couple of episodes but for big s i'm talking about the messaging that shapes our behavior the rules the norms the values, those ideas and ideologies that influence our decision-making. That's big S. Little S is a little bit more about the practical ways that our society is organized, as in some people need to you know, get to work and they live far away. So we've got cars, we've got highways, we've got buses and public transportation. Those are practical ways that society meets our needs. But I'm talking about big S in this context, thinking about those larger messages that we get and sometimes we have no idea where we got them from. So here's the question again. How does society see the self? And my answer is this, often through our social locations, which reduce our identities to the things that are important for us to be able to realize our life outcomes. So what do I mean when I say a social location? I want you to think about, you know, a long time ago when you used to go to the mall. And let's say you were looking for your Auntie Anne's pretzel because I'm going to leave with a pretzel, right? But I need to know where Auntie Anne's is. So I'm going to go look at, you know, the little um, kiosk that tells me the map of everything. And there's always that little star that's like, you are here. Consider your social location to be that. A map that expresses all of your identities, all of your group memberships, and the social positions that you hold that are meaningful to the society you live in. Some of them are things like age, religious background, gender, sex, sexuality, race and ethnicity, and something that we often forget about too, ability, right? The idea that you may be considered able-bodied in the society you live in. A social location helps you better understand what share of privilege and power do I have in a society that I live in, right? It helps you kind of think about and determine what relationship you hold to other people. And here's why. Because a social location often gives people certain ideas about who we are are when i say i'm a black woman people go oh okay i have an idea about that even if they have not met every black woman in the country or in the world because you're not going to but a social location helps us to kind of it's like it helps us to kind of bypass thinking that we're going to get to know someone because we can oh i know this category you're this age range oh okay i i know you right and it's a falsehood actually because right? you don't know people because of their social location, but it does help us to get a certain idea about who people are if we go along with the way society uses it. Now, that's why we're going to bring in Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom's work in her book, Thick, because I love the way she talks about social locations. And she helps us to turn the lens from allowing a social location to determine and define us and us actually going, well, what does it say about my society instead? Let's get into that. So she writes in the first chapter of her book, Thick, essays titled the same, I take very seriously the idea of social locations. We are people with free will circumscribed to different degrees by histories that shape who we are allowed to become. And she writes really eloquently about the fact that she's always asking herself, why is she able to have the life that she has now and not her grandmother, someone who she said wasn't seen as book smart, but was one of the smartest people she ever knew. She says, that's where my essays always begin, by interrogating why me and not my grandmother? Why now and not then? Why this U.S. and not some other U.S.? What more simply does my social location say about our society? That is quite different from trying to figure out how everything in our society is about me. She is activating our agency, y'all, our ability to make conscious and aware choices about ourselves. Because, yeah, if you let the social location that you have dictate how you're supposed to see yourself, you might end up not feeling great about who you are and also feeling pretty dismal about who you are allowed to become, feeling pretty sad about the options for who you're allowed to become. But I love that frame. Let me not let society tell me who I am. Let me ask questions about the kind of society I live in based on how it wants to perceive me. Because that's what it is, right? A social location is one of the ways that people are trying to figure out who you are. It's much different from going, yeah, I may be perceived that way, but who's actually in charge of the, the rules of perception? Who gets to determine what's important in terms of how I get to be seen and viewed? So let me give you an example. Y'all know I'm Jamaican, right? Proud Jamaican body out from Brooklyn, definitely that, right? So, I moved here when I was around 9 and I'm in a classroom and somebody poked me. I say poke because that's the word that I learned in that context, but that's not what I said. I said them juke me, teacher, I'm me. Y'all everybody laughed at me because what is a joke? What's a poke to a joke? Apparently they're the same thing, right? But in that context, I was like, "Ooh!" Right, what I was learning is that part of my social location is being an immigrant in this country. That there's a lot that I was going to have to learn about how to live in this country that didn't mesh with where I came from, which is Jamaica. So that's one of those messes. That's one of the times that I um, you know, ran up against my social location well before I even knew what a social location was. Another example is, you know, when I first stepped into a college classroom and when I would go on college campuses because I look younger than I am to people. And I would often find myself being disrespected in certain ways because of that understanding or that assumption that I was younger than I was. Oftentimes I would walk into offices needing to get help and people would go, this is a student, I can dismiss her, I can ignore her. But the minute they saw my ID and it said faculty or the minute that I kind of spoke up and I, you know, invoked that other side of me, right? Then all of a sudden I got a different kind of treatment. And I find that to be really interesting because again, we're back to figuring out how we are being perceived because of these social locations. Because you think I look young, you think you could talk to me crazy. No, ma'am, this ain't the Jamaican spot. I'm not here to get some food, okay? I will not tolerate your disrespect for a good piece of oxtail. You gonna respect me, okay? Whether or not you think I'm young. Anywho, I digress. So when we turn the lens the other way and we don't just go, well, My society sees me this way through my social location. And we ask the question, what does my social location say about my society? I think we end up with something way more critical that we can use to help change the world that we live in. The messaging that we get from society about the self through our social locations often ends up in two big camps, right? One of them is this, that the self is an object to be manipulated, to be controlled, to be brought under submission, to be brought into conformity with the rest of everybody else. Let's take a second and unpack that. Especially because the news hit this week about the Texas superintendent taking out a one-page ad to basically complain about a young man who has locks and has worn his hair in locks to school. And one of the things he said was being American requires conformity. Whoa, let's back that thing up. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That the self is an object and that you should be doing everything you can to bring yourself into conformity, to deny yourself maybe the truth of who you really are so that you can fit in with the rest of the group. But let's get to the second point because I'll come back to that. Now, the self is also often given to us or seen as a product, an accumulation of things, of ideas, of material possessions. And the danger here is the assumption that by accumulating these things and making myself into this product, I am ensuring my worth and my value and my desirability and my place in the world. Both of those perspectives are full-on individualism, which sociology is anti. It places the onus and the burden on individuals to fix themselves. It says you're deficient, something is wrong with you, and you've got to fix yourself to be a productive member of this society. What it doesn't do is make us go, wait a minute, what's wrong with the place that I live in that I can't wear locks to school? How are locks getting in the way of me learning, you know? And, and listen, I was that kid that my mom was always like, get your hand out your hair, but it's not stopping you from learning. So the self as an object that needs to be manipulated and brought into conformity, the self as a product where you need to accumulate things, those ideas are harmful to our self-concept and construction of self. Here's an example that leads us to thinking about how we experience the self as a product. I I don't drive a luxury car, but I've heard folks who drive luxury cars talk about how people defer to them on the streets. Now, I am a New York driver. And so the fact that we out here hustling on these New York roads and because you're in a BMW or a Lexus, I'm going to give you a blight and let you go is crazy to me but it says something about the status that we get when we accumulate certain things, right? I think it also lends to this conversation about black girl luxury. And I am not here to deny black women luxurious things, all the luxury, please. I wanna see black women living well and being loved well. But I also think there are questions we can ask ourselves. What's the value of me carrying a Chanel? Does that communicate something to someone else about me? Some maybe respect or worth or value that I'm trading for because that's the heart of some of these things. And I'm not trying to indict anybody because I ask myself those very same questions about the things that I like, right? Don't put me on the bird website because I'm going to like a lot of things. But are some of the things I like because of what response I might get from having them? Um, Are some of the things I like related to the way I may be perceived because I possess them? That's the core of understanding the self as a product. When I think about these two camps, the self as an object and the self as a product, where I end up is coming back to this idea that I am not enough on my own. That unless I bring myself into conformity, I won't be included in the group or unless I possess these things my worth, my value, right? Part of the problem with that is if we're constantly chasing validation outside of ourselves, we are never going to be satisfied because it's always going to be another thing to get. It's another phone. It's another bag. It's this shoe. It's this new brand that communicates something. And guess what? We're on the hamster wheel once again. How do we step off of that to go, I'm worthy whether or not I'm wearing this brand or not? whether or not I am comporting myself in ways that people say I should in this context over another. That's the problem with validation, right? People always say it's good for parking, but it is not good for evolving as the self and creating a self-concept that is positive and based on love of self rather than love of things or um, being addicted to the way that people perceive us or validation from others. So point three, how do we meet ourselves through the mirror we get from the society we live in that reflects negative or positive approval or feedback? This is really important for us to understand the way that this mirror works. And I'm pulling this mirror sort of analogy from another sociologist, Charles Horton Cooley, who talks about the looking glass self. A looking glass might sound weird to us, but it's basically a mirror. And what happens is sometimes what we get back from the society we we live in doesn't reinforce who we think we are. Sometimes society reinforces it and sometimes it doesn't. I always think about Viola Davis's character in that movie, The Help, where she would tell that little white girl before she left the house, you is kind, you is smart, you is important. Problem is all of us have to leave the safety of home, right? And then you go outside and you set foot into the world and it's like, no, you are not kind. You are not smart. You are not important what happens to us then? This is why representation matters. And no, we're talking about mirrors, but it's also important to note that some of us never get any mirrors. And I'm always haunted by that Juno Diaz quote where he talks about mirrors for that reason. I'm gonna read it to you because it's key. Juno Diaz says, if you wanna make a human being into a monster, deny them at the cultural level any reflection of themselves. And growing up, I felt like a monster in some ways. I didn't see myself reflected at all. I was like, yo, is something wrong with me? That the whole society seems to think that people like me don't exist? Can we hold that for a minute? That some of us get mirrors and we'll get into that, but some of us get no mirrors at all and are forced to confront whether or not we are monsters in the society that we live in. There's also contemporary relevance here, one of which we have seen the erasure of the Palestinian people. We've seen the erasure of their history. We've seen the way that the news has framed coverage that denies them the idea that they are victims. We also see it every now and then when we have natural disasters and one group is finding food and the others looting. It's not coincidental when we see that framing either. So we've got some of us not getting the mirror at all, but then the rest of us sometimes get the funhouse of mirrors. And if you know the funhouse, sometimes you go in there and the mirrors are all types of shapes and sizes, and they distort the image of you. So you can't even recognize yourself. Again, this is another place where our agency has to be activated because self-determination is true and exists for us. I do not have to accept the mirror you give me. I don't even have to have to accept the fact that you didn't give me a mirror at all. I can create my own. And oftentimes we do create our own, but it doesn't erase that cognitive dissonance of validating myself, but then having to go out into a world that is hell bent on denying the fact that I'm real and I'm here. This is where Du Bois' theory of double consciousness comes in. And y'all probably know this theory, but let's talk about it because W.E.B. Du Bois is a pioneer in the sociological field and needs to be mentioned. I love the way that um, sociologists Carita Brown and Jose Itzagon talk about and really bring Du Bois's work to the forefront in their book, The Sociology of W.E.B. Du Bois. But they talk about double consciousness as one of the ways that you see sort of a response to this construction of self, a racialized self, becoming aware of what it means to be black or to be latino or to be right asian in this context and they write that du bois describes double consciousness as a feeling of two-ness of belonging to two different social worlds on the one hand the black world that is humanity affirming and on the other one the white world that denies the humanity of the racialized person we're talking about humanity here folks denying my humanity and the idea that I can have this one side of myself that is so affirmed. I'm, you know, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud, right? We black, black, blackity black. Cause we black on this podcast every day, every episode, we're going to be extra black next month. Cause it's also a leap year, but guess what? We black all the time, but imagine being able to immerse yourself in a space that is so affirming of your humanity and your existence. And then having that juxtaposed with spaces that literally don't want you to exist and want to deny your seat at the table. That's the juxtaposition that we are facing. But we don't have to accept that mirror. We don't have to accept the reflection that we are given from society. We do have power and agency there. I think it's also important to note that there may be some of you who listen and go, I have never seen myself adequately reflected in the world around me. And I want to pause and acknowledge how soul crushing that can be. I can think about my own times where I didn't see myself reflected. I think about that a lot in the career that I've chosen. And I think about what happened when I started to actively go searching for those mirrors. Because the reality is, y'all, the more that I searched, the more that I found people that resonated with me. So when I think about this career in particular, there's a memory I have where I went to a talk given by Dr. Tressie McMillan-Cottom because I had been reading her work and I was just so inspired. I was like, this is how I want to write. I don't want to write like the way that other people write. She writes in a way that I'm like, yeah, I'm getting it. And so I went to the talk and I doubt she remembers this, but this moment was transformative for me because I asked a question. I was an adjunct at that point, teaching at multiple schools and You know, I asked, hey, I'm about to become tenure track and I want to know, like, how do I survive? Right. What's what's something I need to know about being a black woman in the academy? And she said, recognize that the institution will never love you and pay it forward when you get there. And those words sit in my head all the time. If I'm honest, those are some of the words that are pushing me to show up in this space, even though YouTuber, podcaster, not the thing that I thought I was ever going to do. And it's very uncomfortable for me but I'm fully realizing that somebody needs a mirror and a reflection from me, from my life. And so I'm here hoping that this mirror that I'm sort of putting in front, right, reflects to someone, hey, you can do this. You can move into an authentic version of yourself. You do not have to succumb to the pressures to conform. You can be yourself. And that I think is the task for all of us when it comes to considering what we get from society about the messages of who we can be and have permission to become and what we actually want to do deep within ourselves, that's an anchor and also pointing us in the direction we need to go. Remember from last episode, sociology is about self-understanding and direction. And a lot of times that direction comes from you getting still and quiet and checking in with yourself. What do you really want to do? even if there's a pressure to conform, even if the rules and big society says you should be doing this at this point in time. No, what do you want to do? That's a place where we get to empower ourselves again and to activate our agency, our ability to make conscious and aware choices in pursuit of the things that we want to realize in this world. So let's recap really quickly. Point one what is the self? The self is an evolving idea we hold about who we are and that we live out with real consequences. Point two, how does society see the self? Often through our social locations, which reduce us to the identities that are most important for us realizing the life outcomes we want in a society we live in. And sometimes that means that we get these two big camps of the self, the self as an object that needs to be manipulated, under submission, brought into conformity, and the self as a product that needs to accumulate things, material possessions and whatever, to be seen as valuable and worthy. Point three is how do we meet the self? We meet the self through the mirror that we get from the society we live in, which reflects either positive or negative approval or feedback. So where does that leave us? I think it leaves us considering this question, who do we really think we are? And to get there, I'm gonna bring in another sociologist, Martha Beck and her book, The Way of Integrity, Finding Your True Self. Now this quote's a little long, But I promise you, it is really worth it. From childhood, often without even noticing it, we learn exactly how to win approval and belonging in our particular cultural context. We act bubbly, quiet, or brave to please our families. We immediately begin to like whatever our friends say they like. We throw ourselves into schoolwork, babysitting, family feuds, whatever we believe will assure our place in the human world. In this rush to conform, we often end up ignoring or overruling our genuine feelings, even intense ones like longing or anguish to please our cultures. At that point, we're divided against ourselves. We aren't in integrity, one thing, but in duplicity, two things, or we may try to fit in with a number of different groups, living in multiplicity many things. We abandon our true nature and become pawns of our culture, smiling politely, sitting attentively, wearing the perfect, uncomfortable clothes. This is why a soldier will march into gunfire without complaint. It's why whole communities once thought it made sense to burn a few witches here and there. The extent to which people will defy nature to serve culture can be truly horrifying but the whole thing works very well from the perspective of creating and sustaining human groups. There's just one catch. Nature does not give up without a fight. If you've ever found yourself snapping at someone you dearly love or sitting down to complete a work project only to spend five hours shopping for home tattoo kits online, it's probably because you're internally divided. You're trying to act in ways that don't feel right to you at the deepest level. Whenever we do this, our lives begin to go pear-shaped. Emotionally, we feel grumpy, sad, or numb. Physically, our immune systems and muscles weaken. We might get sick, and even if we don't, our energy flattens. Mentally, we lose focus and clarity. That's how it feels to be out of integrity. This quote resonates with me. Because when I read it, I went, oh, that's how I've been feeling. And I felt this before. If you're like me, you probably felt this in the pandemic where I was terrified, but here I go logging on to Zoom to go run a workshop about how to teach online when inside I'm all, what's happening in the world? Remember episode one, we talked about apathy and anxiety. I think living out of integrity does increase both of those things for us. But the point here is, are we denying our true selves the opportunity to show up? Because that's what those symptoms are pointing out, that we're in duplicity or in multiplicity, trying to satisfy too many masters, splitting ourselves into a million little pieces that we will some point have to gather back together. So sometimes those symptoms are pointing out that there's a change that needs to happen, but are we willing to do the work to pull ourselves back into integrity, even if it means that we are out of conformity with the culture. I salute that young man in Texas and his family for pushing back against not being able to wear locks in school. I don't know what my hair gotta do with my learning anyway. To be honest, the more comfortable I feel, the more I can learn. And that's what the Crown Act, which was passed in Texas back in September, that's what the Crown Act should guarantee. I push back on that superintendent that says being American requires conformity for unity. I don't think it does. I think unity and harmony comes about when we are all allowed to thrive as our full selves, where inclusivity and belonging are not determined based on how I comport myself, right? How I deny myself or how I accumulate things. So where does that leave us? Having to go back to a question that is simple, but quite existential and deep. Who do we think we are? Now, I'm going to be a little sort of, you know, whatever here, because <laughs> that question really was raised for me in earnest as I've been watching Jonathan Majors and this baffling PR tour he's been on with my good sis, Megan the Good. Because, you know, Candace Benbow said it the best. She was like, who does Jonathan Majors think he is? Pressure. An embattled civil rights leader? I want us all to tackle that question with the fierceness that Jonathan Majors seems to be applying it to his own self. Who do we think we are? When you're evaluating and considering who you think you are or who you want to be, are you living in integrity or are you in duplicity or worse, multiplicity? What can you do to bring yourself back to the truth of who you are? Y'all know my answer. I'm here, right? (laughs) This episode too, I've shown up because that's one of the ways that I'm bringing myself back into integrity. I think I got something to say and I want to share it with you all. And just so you know, we're in community here together. So as much as I may be talking about these things, I want you to understand that I am holding myself up under the spotlight first. And that's where all the things I share with you come from because we are in this together. We ask the big why questions so we can get to the how questions that are really going to transform ourselves and transform the world we live in. Now, you can listen to this podcast wherever podcasts are listened to. (laughs) So we're on Apple, we're on Spotify, but when you give us a listen or a download, leave us a like, write us a review, give us a comment. We want to hear from you. And if you're answering this question or the one about well-being, give us a comment. I want to talk with you and engage with you. I want to know how this resonates with you. Because I hope that it's actually doing the work that I intend, which is getting us comfortable with being who we are so we can change this world to something that reflects what we actually want to live in. All right, y'all. We went deep sea diving. We're back up for air. See you in two weeks for our next episode. And trust, you don't want to miss it because we're talking culture. Until next time.